This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Let me tell you what happened to me. This is going on a couple of years ago. I was solicited by a local gentleman who had a, in a magazine. He had a magazine, and he also had an association with this very radio station. I won't name him, but he was a very neutral talk show host. And uh, this gentleman asked me to write an article for his magazine, and he wanted it to be on faith-based initiatives. And I said, okay, I would do that. So I wrote the article. Now, this involved a good deal of research, phone calls, uh, internet surfing to get the kind of information that I wanted. And lo and behold, after I'm done, the magazine goes down the toilet. And I thought, you know, I spent hours and hours on this article, and now it's going to remain in the files of my hard drive for the rest of eternity? Actually, that's what I, what I thought, until Kate Linz called me up uh, just uh, about a week ago or so and suggested that we do a show on faith-based initiatives. Well, I have Kate in the in the uh, studio with me right now. However, before I bring her on, I'm going to read this article that I wrote so that it will not be for naught that I put all this energy into this very, very important subject. So, for the next three or four minutes, what you're going to be listening to is an article entitled Tales of the FBI. FBI meaning, of course, faith-based initiative, and by me. Well, at long last, they've come up with a subject that can unite liberals and conservatives. The faith-based initiatives issue is stirring up some hot talk on both the right and the left. I'm sure you've heard much of the buzz before. President Bush would like to expand on an already existing program that President Clinton signed into law in 1996. A largely Republican Congress crafted the Personal Responsibility and Right to Work Act. In it is a provision called Charitable Choice. This portion allows those seeking assistance to look to religious organizations for support if they so choose. The current president's plan would take things a step further and actually fund some successful religious groups in the area of social service known as Faith-Based Operatives, or FBOs. The reason that each side gives for their concern about such a program fit very well into classic liberal-slash-conservative paradigms. From the right, we hear premonitions of the government twisting and turning these spiritual societies into ineffective bureaucracies that will soon forget their primary mission. The left, of course, has doubts that the U.S. government possesses the ability to be impartial in its doling of dollars. Some are concerned that the conservative evangelical wing of Christianity will end up becoming more powerful than it already is if those societies who identify with that ideology are funded by the feds. 
To get a clearer understanding of the conservative perspective, I contacted Joseph Klesny from Grand Rapids' own Acton Institute. If you're not familiar with them, they're a local organization dedicated to combining the free market with faith. The folks at Acton share a perspective with other groups right of center. While they appreciate President, President Bush's optimism that religious organizations can make a real difference in people's lives, they're very hesitant to encourage these FBOs to get stuck in the tangled web of government regulation and lose their original sense of purpose. They do have what I think is an idea that is worthy of strong consideration. According to Mr. Klesny, the Acton Institute advocates an alternative plan whereby FBOs are further empowered without threatening their autonomy. Quote, we look to offer universal tax credits for all taxpayers who contribute to charities, faith-based or not, says Klesny. In addition, professionals who volunteer their services to charities should also receive a credit. The tax credit plan allows individuals to freely contribute a portion of their tax dollars to charity and protects the independence of the organizations because the money is not attached to governmental regulations. Well, speaking as one who has done his fair share of volunteering over the years, I sure wouldn't turn down a tax break if it were offered. Among those regulations they are concerned with involve discrimination. Acton is very supportive of any religious group's right to hire whom they want in social service ca capacities. Say a local FBO has a drug rehab program and is in need of a compassionate, knowledgeable director with an MSW and a good deal of experience. Say you fit the profile I've just given. Now say you're gay. Say you're agnostic. Okay, let's really load the dice. You're Jewish as well. Say the leadership of the aforementioned FBO feels uncomfortable hiring you on religious grounds. As it stands right now, the FBO, not getting a dime from Congress, can pass you up for someone whose personal philosophy is more in sync with theirs. Once the Fed becomes part of this program, all that might change for those organizations which choose to become recipients of Uncle Sam's lucre. Government hiring rules prevent employers from looking at things like religion, race, or sexual orientation of a prospective employee. Under discussion is the possibility of allowing FBOs to be exempt from those rules. On the surface, it may sound like a logical request to be able to unify people of one faith to attack a social ill. Maybe it is, but would St. Mary's Hospital be the institution it is today if everyone on staff was Catholic by decree? Don Eberly, the deputy director of the Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives, was recently quoted in the Grand Rapids Press as defending exclusive hiring policies. Unfortunately for his, uh, his cause, he chose a rather lame example to use. Quote, it's not very likely that anyone would question Planned Parenthood's right not to hire a pro-life Baptist, says Mr. Eberly. Sorry, Don. Of course Planned Parenthood has every right to make sure that prospective employees share the mission of the organization. But to 86 a person because they were a Baptist would get Planned Parenthood or any other employer in seriously deep doo-doo. And if polls matter to you at all, a recent one done by the Pew Forum shows that while 75% of Americans think government funding of FBOs is kosher, only 18% believe that the same O's have the right to discriminate in hiring. Criticism from the left tends to revolve around the separation of church and state. There is a great concern on, the part, on their part 
that the Bush administration will end up picking and choosing FBOs whose religious missions are of an evangelical Christian nature. But criticism doesn't end there. The Coalition Against Religious Discrimination, or CARD, recently circulated a petition opposing FBIs. It reads in part, These provisions would entangle religion and government in an unprecedented and perilous way. The flow of government dollars and the accountability for how those funds are used will inevitably undermine the independence and integrity of houses of worship. Allowing government officials to pick and choose among religions for limited government funds, it will foster an unhealthy competition between religions and could lead to an insidious form of political abuse. Exempting government-funded institutions from employment laws, banning discrimination on the basis of religion, weakens our nation's civil rights protections for those seeking to provide assistance to those in need. Another group that is joining CARD in its opposition to faith-based initiatives is the Interfaith Alliance. This is a group made up of religious leaders that hail from a number of wisdom traditions. They tend to support more liberal causes, even though some of its members come from some fairly traditional Christian denominations. IA recently announced its support of the CARD petition. They were instrumental in getting many of the 850-plus signatures of clergy members around the country. I bring them up because I'd like to digress for just a bit here. In preparation for this article, I provided Mr. Klesny from the Acton Institute with a press release from the Interfaith Alliance about this subject and asked for a response, which he provided. He referred to the release as a, quote, leftist critique of the Bush plan, unquote. Then he went on to say that their main thrust seems to be religious discrimination and the separation of church and state. This is not surprising considering the pro-secular nature of many leftist groups. Okay, let's talk about this for a moment. Mr. Klesny likes to use the word leftist in his parlance. I must say I'm a little uncomfortable with that. While he'd be able to make a case for it by waving a dictionary at me, the connotation of leftist is much deeper than just being a liberal or a progressive. Really now, when was the last time you heard the word leftist without the word gorilla right next to it? Play word association for a second. Leftist, Stalin, revolution, commie. And I bet you never heard or read of someone being labeled a rightist, even though rightist is a real word and is the antonym of leftist. To be fair, liberals certainly can be promiscuous with harsh labels as well right-wing zealot can be used to describe anyone between and including a Utah survivalist and a soccer mom who opposes the partial birth abortion method. But I thought that tagging interfaith alliance as leftist was just a bit much, and referring to the pro-secular nature of groups like interfaith alliance is off the mark as well. The name of the organization is interfaith alliance, not anti-faith alliance. There. I'm through digressing. Back to the subject at hand. There's been a little ink spent so far on the possibilities open to non-Christian religious groups. Some people involved in constructing the faith-based initiative plan have concerns about people like Buddhists and Hindus becoming partakers of government wealth and don't get them started on Scientologists or the Nation of Islam. Much has yet to be unraveled. We'll keep you posted. There, that's my article. And I'm going to ask uh, for a response from Kate Lins, who is with me in this studio. 
Kate is a West Michigan native from Muskegon. Her interest is in environmental protection, and it began very early when she started an ecology club at her high school and organized school-wide celebrations of the first Earth Day. Kate was awarded a four-year Board of Control Scholarship at Michigan Technological University. She graduated with honors from Tech in 1979 with a Bachelor's of Science in Civil Engineering. After graduation, Kate moved even farther north to begin her environmental engineering career with the United States Forest Service in Alaska. In addition to her engineering duties, she served as the liaison to the environmental groups and the Native American community. Kate left Alaska in 1981 to attend the University of Oregon School of Law in Eugene, where she specialized in environmental and Indian law. She moved to Grand Rapids in 1984 after receiving her JD and began her environmental consulting career. Kate's 18-year career is characterized by a unique contribution of brownfield redevelopment and the ability to apply these skills in the real world. Her clients include Fortune 500 corporations, municipalities, small businesses, developers, and citizen groups. Kate's academic and professional accomplishments were achieved despite a lifelong struggle with bipolar disorder or manic depression. After a severe episode of depression seven years ago, she chose to come out of the closet about her illness and publicly advocate for people with mental illness. Kate has willingly told her story to local media and was featured in articles on mental health insurance parity in the New York Times and Kiplinger's Personal Finance Magazine. And Kate currently lives in the, on the northwest side of Grand Rapids. And Kate, I've spoken for way too long. <laughs> That's okay, Fred. Welcome. Thank you. And you probably, people hear that uh, bio and they think, well, what does that have to do with faith-based initiatives? That was my first question. Well, I, I've been a uh, one of I've been a card-carrying member of the American Civil Liberties Union since high school. I've been an agnostic my entire life. I've grown up in in conservative Christian West Michigan. And in addition, as someone with a mental illness who has uh, experienced a wide range of providers uh, in this community, um, I'm concerned, not so much, I'm also concerned about, as a civil libertarian, uh, about uh, the hiring practices you discussed in your article, but I'm also concerned with the effect on the people that seek the assistance and seek the services, that if they're not compatible with the faith of the organization providing it, could it be damaging to them? And so I come at it from my lifelong interest in civil liberties as well as having run into folks through support groups and things uh, locally that have been hurt uh, by going to some of these faith-based groups um, because of the particular slant that the group takes wasn't compatible with this individual. And when you're that vulnerable and ill, you're not always able to discern where you should go and where to go from there. So your beef with faith-based operatives uh, is more than just should the government fund them or not? Am, am, am I reading you correctly? Well, it's it's you know if I you know I want to go on record as saying I know that faith-based groups do a lot of good in the community, and you know I recognize that they're not receiving any federal funds. That the the exemption from Title VII on hiring, I don't have a problem with. They can you know that's fine, but to use taxpayer dollars, particularly direct taxpayer dollars, as Bush is proposing to do, then makes 
you know, the taxpayers of this country responsible for giving money to groups that aren't certified, they may not have trained professionals, they're not as accountable, they may discriminate in employment. And face it, you know, there's a small pool of money out there to help fund health programs, for instance, in substance abuse treatment and mental health. And so the other groups that have the licensed professionals will be competing with these other, you know, religious groups to do it. And so here, you know, money's going to go to groups that don't have the reputation or the skill or the accountability. And then if you live in a community like this and you're Muslim or you're an atheist or you're an agnostic, you know, is Mel Trotter where you'd want to go if Mel Trotter took the funds? Is Pine Rest where you want to go? If, you know, it's, it's like, where, what would your alternatives be? And in theory, under all these faith-based initiatives, there's supposed to be an alternative secular uh, alternative out there. But in reality, when there's so li little money to go around, is that going to be the case? And so where will these people then go? It sounds like uh, trying to create a separate but equal exactly. opportunity. But as in the days of Jim Crow, was it really even yeah, equal? Yeah, and it won't be equal. And, you know, I, I, I found myself actually agreeing with the Acton Institute, and that's got to be a first for me, um, <laughs> in that I think a tax credit approach is a wonderful idea. Um, and for anyone who wants to give to a faith-based uh, social service organization, go for it. I think it's great. And I think that even if they don't itemize on their taxes, they should be able to take a deduction. Let's, uh, we should, for uh, the sake of, of some... Uh, identify the difference between a tax credit and a deduction. A tax credit, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, Madam Attorney, uh, allows you to, uh, if you give $5, you actually write off, that's $5 you don't pay to the government. Exactly. For instance, if you donated money during the pledge drive to WGVU Radio that just ended recently, Michigan has a tax credit uh, for a, up to a certain amount that you can take on your taxes that basically say you gave a $100 pledge to w WGVU, um, you'd get a 50% credit on that, so you'd be able to take $50 off the taxes that you owe to the state. And if it was a deduction, let's say you, you uh, uh, donated that money to... X charity, the Red Cross maybe. If that's you, only a deduction. Right, and that's deducted. That what that does is that deducts from, you know, it goes through a formula from your tax liability, and you have to itemize to be mm -hmm. able to take it. So if you don't itemize, say you do the short form on your federal income tax, you can't deduct anything like that, which is one of the things Bush is proposing to change, and I don't disagree with that. Uh, but for me, it's just... <laughs> When, when people talk about the separation of church and state, uh, particularly in this community, if you read the letters to the public pulse in the Grand Rapids Press, it's like, well, you know, separation of church and state is a myth. That's not what, you know, the Establishment Clause in the Constitution does. You know, it's not supposed to interfere with religion. It's just not supposed to have a government-sponsored religion. But if you're from a majority religion in a community that's still relatively homogeneous, it's very difficult for you to see that not everyone shares your belief and how intrusive and coercive it can be for the minority of people that do not share your belief. If you take that one step farther to people with a substance abuse problem or a mental illness who are already vulnerable emotionally and you add that component to it, they're very susceptible to being, you know, a feeling coerced or left out or wrong or guilty or sinful. And to me, it's even more important when you have a vulnerable group of people to protect them from that type of, of maybe even indirect proselytizing. And 
that's exactly to me what these programs do. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and my guest today is Kate Linz, a local activist, and we're talking about faith-based initiatives and faith-based operatives. Do you have some examples that you can share about people who were in the system, if you will, and, and did not fare as well? Well, I, I have my own personal experience um, at a faith-based uh, treatment center here in Grand Rapids um, where I was hospitalized um, during a severe depression episode. And one of the things that they ask you on the intake information is what religion you are. Well, you know, I put down that I didn't really have one. Um, and when I requested a copy of my file after I left, I noticed that that was referred to many times that, you know, that I wasn't religious, that I was a leftist. They even quoted in, in the notes that I said something bad about Newt Gingrich. It was in 1994, so, you know, it was appropriate. Um, and I thought that was a sign that some part of my brain was still functioning correctly. But to them, it was a sign of a personality disorder. And there was even a little debate in there of whether or not maybe I had that instead of bipolar, because they were coming from a perspective where that was leftist, wrong, bad, sinful, and it's, it's, it's a flaw in my personality. Um, for instance, I don't know if you remember, but recently the woman in uh, Zealand who killed her two daughters by, uh, I think she stabbed them and poisoned them, and it was right before September 11th, so it kind of got lost until the trial recently. Well, she belonged to a very evangelical church, and apparently, and people were more willing to believe that she was in a battle with the devil, a personal battle with the devil, then she might have a mental illness, despite all of the symptoms she exhibited and the counseling and stuff that she got from her church in terms of, you know, it was kind of mental health counseling. I don't know if it was formally that, but was basically, you know, you have to battle harder with the devil. Well, this woman was clearly psychotic. And there was even a headline in the Grand Rapids Press. I bought it, you know, brought it with me. Grandma, you know, says that Satan made her do it or something like that. And, and why, particularly with mental illness, in our culture there's still so much stigma and, and, and substance abuse as well, that it's a personal failing, that it's not really an illness. And so you, you, you tangle that up with religion and you're, you're, you're apt to ignore the, the biochemical basis for these illnesses in true science. And that also concerns me because, it, you know, I didn't have a personality disorder. Yes, I'm liberal, but I don't consider that a personality <laughs> disorder. <laughs> uh, maybe in Grand Rapids it is, I don't know. But it, to me, you know, to have that in my record is just a clear example. Did you ever challenge them on that? Well, you know, you can't challenge them when you're in the hospital because then you'll never get out. Um, it's sort of, you know, it's not one floor of the cuckoo's nest anymore, but you have to, even I had to learn to shut up in those situations. Um, and when I got out, you know, what was it worth to challenge it, really? But I know that um, at this particular place, they start their professional meetings with physicians and stuff with Christian prayers. So if you were a Jewish psychiatrist, or if you were an agnostic, or an atheist, or a Buddhist, or a Hindu, would you be comfortable in that setting? The very mission statement uh, of this organization says just to provide you know, professional services from a Christian perspective. Uh, the youth programs there are, are evangelical, and they're voluntary. But if you're in an in a inpatient psychiatric unit, and you're a teenager, and this is your one chance to get off the unit, you know, you're going to feel coerced to go. 
you know, and that's the point. The Establishment Clause is like the reverse of majority rule. We're in a representative democracy. At least we were until the 2002 election. But we, <laughs> we I digress, but we're a representative democracy. But the Establishment Clause, or the separation of church and state, is the exact opposite of that. The purpose of it is to protect that lone minority against the voice of the majority in terms of religion, so they don't feel coerced. Now, you, you opened up by saying that you agreed that there are many organizations that are faith-based that do good for the community. I agree with that. All right. How would you change, if they brought you in, this institution you're talking about, if they brought you in as a consultant and said, look, we, we think we're doing some good work, but, but we see that some people in the community have issues with us. We still want to maintain our Christian identity. What could we do that's better? Would you would you just say I'm sorry you have to close your doors because uh, I don't think they have to close their doors and I think they do good work and I think they have very talented professionals there, but I don't want to see that aspect of their services funded with federal dollars. Whatever they want to do with private dollars, I have no problem with. But you're saying that they they had private dollars they have private dollars up to this day. Yes. But, but then, but the but the <laughs> but the combined the inpatient unit that replaced uh, Ken Oaks. Uh, the, the county uh, mental hospital, that is, you know, there, there are issues, I think, with that, and that does take Medicaid money, that does take state money. You know, um, it's, it's the kind of thing where I don't have any problem with what they do, but one, I think they need to be aware and more receptive to people of different beliefs and to be very alert to whether or not they're even being indirectly coercive, um, and that's what I would encourage them to be. But I don't want them to get federal funds because I don't think it's appropriate because I do believe that their very mission contains an element of proselytization. That's, I just I find that worrisome. And would you suspect that there are people who have advanced degrees in psychology, psychopharmacology, who still believe that the devil is at work and and I wouldn't be surprised, you know. Um, I, and I know there are people who aren't, but if... If, if you have a culture where there's that strong basis, and particularly, for instance, the, uh, during the president's um, last State of the Union address, and he referenced his proposal for federal funding for substance abuse treatment to faith-based organizations, and the woman that he referenced uh, from Louisiana as an example of how wonderful this is, is a, a recovering drug addict with no training in substance abuse treatment, no certifications, none of her staff are certified, and basically it is a church program. I mean, it is to bring the person to a Christian faith. Well, that isn't something that government should fund. In, in Florida, uh, the ACLU has challenged a program where the, the state of Florida's health department published, with their big state health department logo on it, a Christian perspective on AIDS that was, was very biblical with state funds. You know, which, which basically implied you know, being homosexual is, is sinful and all these other things, which I think is an inappropriate use of state funds. But these are the kind of things that are envisioned, I believe, with the people behind this faith-based initiative. And to someone like me, who would always be on the minority end of the stick, with my federal tax money, the way I view the Establishment Clause, I think it's wrong. That, that's astounding. You're telling me that they're in the process of, uh, of trying to figure out whether that was a correct move or not yes. down in Florida? Yes. How long ago was this? Do oh, you know? this is quite recent. Um, 
Uh, let's see, it was uh, April of this year, 2003, ACLU of Florida demands recall of State Health Department's religious AIDS brochure. Well, l let's hold on to that thought right now because we are out of time for this particular segment, but I'm going to ask you to come back next week and we can finish this very fascinating discussion on faith-based initiatives. That sounds great. I look forward to it. Kate Linz has been my guest here on WGVU's Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella. Please join us again next week. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began a very fascinating discussion on the idea of faith-based initiatives or faith-based operatives. The notion of the government funding religious organizations for social service programs. With me back then and with me today is Kate Linz. Kate is a West Michigan native from Muskegon, and even though today we're talking about faith-based initiatives, her first love uh, seems to be environmental protection, and it began in an early age when she started an ecology club at her high school and organized a school-wide celebration of the first Earth Day. Kate was awarded a four-year Board of Control scholarship at Michigan Technological University. She graduated with honors from Tech in 79 with a Bachelor's of Science in Civil Engineering. After graduation, Kate uh, did some environmental work in Alaska. She left Alaska in 81 to get her law degree at the University of Oregon, where she specialized in environmental and Indian law. She moved to Grand Rapids in 84 after receiving her JD and began her environmental consulting career. Her 18-year career is characterized by a unique combination of strong technical skills in environmental cleanup, hazardous waste management, and brownfield redevelopment, and the ability to apply these skills in the real world. Her clients include Fortune 500 corporations, municipalities, small businesses, developers, and citizens groups. Uh, we spoke about her background last week, and even though 
the bio that she gave me has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. She is more than well qualified to speak on the subject. So, Kate, welcome back to Common Threads. Well, thank you, Fred. And uh, let's... Um, Let's continue pretty much where we left off, and we were talking about actually a particular mental health institution in this uh, lovely West Michigan area yes. that has a very strong religious message. Which, you know, is perfectly within, you know, their right to operate that way. And, you know, I think it's, uh, I respect them for it. I respect the people that donate the money to allow them to do it. My concern is, is that there's not a lot of other alternatives in the community, and if the faith-based initiative funding starts getting funneled, funneled into programs like this, um, there won't be alternatives for anyone who does not fit the faith model of the institutions available here. I mean, if you look at most of the public, the agencies that serve the public, you know, you have Hope Network, you have Pine Rest, you have Mel Trotter, you know, Heartside. I even do volunteer work in Heartside, so it's not like I'm opposed to working with faith groups. I'm not, even as an agnostic. Of course I'm not. I recognize they do good work, but in this community, the, the, the vast number of services available, particularly to people on Medicaid or low-income or indigent, are from a Christian, evangelical Christian perspective, and that is the majority of what is available. And if you add f direct federal funding to that mix under a faith-based initiative program that would allow them to discriminate not only in employment, so if everyone that worked for those organizations then were very fervent in that belief, if you came to them as, as someone that did not fit their model with an illness or a substance abuse problem, you know, would they really connect with you? I mean, it's one thing to have somebody look at your tumor. You know, your faith, uh, it doesn't have that much to do with your tumor unless you maybe are a Christian scientist or something. But when you're talking about a mental illness, which is so tangled up with the person's uh, emotions and background and, for instance, with severe depression, their senses of guilt and worthlessness and everything, or people that are psychotic are really susceptible to suggestion. And so you bring them in, and if part of it is, you know, one of your problems is, is that you don't believe in God and you haven't been born again, and that person is a Muslim or that person is a, a Hindu or that person is an atheist, is that really appropriate to say to that person at a vulnerable time like that? I don't think it is. And I think adding federal money to that mix is like pouring you know, gasoline on a fire. And I, I think it's, it's, it's potentially damaging to the very people they purport to help. Tell me a little bit about the kind of volunteering that you do at Heartside and, and with whom. Well, for instance, um, and it's been slowed down a little because uh, with their, some of their funding problem, they had to let Rick Tormala, their director, go. Um, I'm very involved in mental health advocacy on the state level in terms of funding and, and prescription drug formulary programs and stuff like that. And I felt like the mental health uh, support groups in, in this community weren't really that advocacy oriented. So I contacted Rick Tormala at Heartside um, to get together with a bunch of providers and stuff in the community in one of the most vulnerable neighborhoods to some of these state cutbacks, which is in Heartside, to talk about what we could do to work with the state legislature to convince them to preserve the funding and programs that we needed. And so we, we, we helped contribute to a study done by the Michigan Mental Health Association on what the new drug prescription formulary program the state has, what some of the damage it was causing to people with psychiatric illnesses. Um, we've met with state legislators and people from Levin's office and stuff to talk about some of these issues. 
and we hope to get it back up and running again soon um, now that we've had a little bit of a break. But those are the kind of things that, you know, I consistently do. But that's not faith-based. No, not to, but, but, but HeartSight is, but they were the best vehicle to bring some of the other groups together to help the people in that community. And I respect the work they do. Now, if they got federal dollars to do it, I'd start to feel kind of edgy. But I believe in what they do, and I put my time into it. Now, the president has said that he thinks that you can separate the two. You can, you can separate the evangelical nature of some uh, societies, some organizations, uh, from the actual social service that they do. Do you believe that's possible? No, um, I really don't. I mean, I think, I think it is in some religions more than others. But particularly if you take some more evangelical tenets, uh, groups of, of Christianity, where, where testimony and witnessing are very important part of spreading the faith, and it's either black or white, you're saved and you're going to heaven, or you're not. It's very difficult for someone who believes that to shut that off and accept another person for their faith and, and view them as a whole wonderful person and not see them as someone that's going to burn in hell forever if somehow you don't save them. You know, in your mind, you're helping them. In theirs, you're not. I listened to an interview on WGVU with uh, Shelley Irwin over the holidays last year, around the Christmas holidays, and talking to somebody at Mel Trotter. And she says, well, do you provide services to folks that aren't Christian? And the person said, well, yes, we do provide to all faiths. You know, it's an opportunity for us to testify to them. You know, that is my concern, is that that's inappropriate if you're receiving federal funds. 12-step uh, programs under AA. You're supposed to, first thing you're supposed to do in the 12 steps is to give yourself up to a higher power. Well, the way it is taught is that higher power is the Christian God. Now, if you're an atheist, a 12-step program that you're referred to by the court is going to be a violation of your religious freedom, and there have been successful challenges in other states to that in the courts. Is there a substitute for... Yes, there is. There's a group called Rational Recovery, which is a non-faith-based support group. In fact, they meet at Fountain Street Church twice a twice a week. Is it like an 11-step program? I don't know. I've never <laughs> gone. <laughs> but I do know they exist, and they're nationwide, and they, and they do have it at Fountain Street. And you would say the, the model is, is related from what you know? From what I know it is, but it isn't based on, it doesn't have the religious connotations. I see. Where is this whole issue of FBI's right now in, in, in the it has been whittled back. It, it surprisingly got pretty tangled up in the Senate and stuff. And I think about the only thing that's going to pop out in the near future is the deductions and maybe the tax credit aspect of it. Uh, the rest of it got bogged down between the, the right, like you were saying in the, in, the, in the show last week, with the Acton Institute being concerned that giving the federal money will entangle the religion um, and make them lose their focus of their faith. And then the left people like me saying civil liberties, civil liberties, civil liberties, somehow it got slowed down. But there's interesting things going on. This is a little bit different than, than mental health or substance abuse treatment. But through a regulation issued in the Federal Register, which doesn't require congressional approval, um, President Bush did a thing where now um, HUD, Housing and Urban Development, can give money for building structures to faith-based groups that provide housing and training and mentoring services to low-income people um, to allow them to build 
huge structures and fund programs even if only a tiny part of it isn't faith-based. We're talking really? brick and mortar. We're talking tons of money. And you're saying that this is not a part of the actual legislation that's going through right it's now? An interpre this it is a new interpretation of a rule that was in the Federal Register given to HUD. So you're saying this could happen tomorrow? Yes. Has it happened to your... Not, not to my knowledge yet. But this is something that, you know, and that's what, that's what makes me doubt the sincerity of, of, of the Bush administration on this. Because if they really wanted it to be even-handed and evenly distributed and to not encourage proselytization, that's a hard word to say on the radio, they wouldn't be doing things like this that go under the radar. I mean, how many people are as nerdy as I am and read the Federal Register every day? <laughs> uh, you know, I admit I have insomnia. You know, I tend to sit on the computer all night. But it's scary because this stuff is buried in there. And there will be legal challenges to it because they're talking about direct funding. And, they have, they, and these people don't even have to keep separate books. They get to self-certify. So it's just rampant with the opportunity for abuse. What happens if they build a huge building, participate in a program for a year, and then decide they're not going to do it anymore? Is the government going to then con take over their building and take it away from the church? I really doubt that. And so you could have hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars of taxpayers' funds going into building this church's structure that was used for maybe 10% secular purposes, and now the taxpayers funded it. That bothers me. In your worldview, when somebody does have a religious experience, when somebody does go to uh, some sort of substance abuse treatment facility that is faith-based, if, or if they're a member of a church uh, and they go to their pastor for counseling and, and some powerful transformation takes place and they are able to be helped, in your worldview, what is really happening? If you don't believe that Jesus or whomever is coming into their life and making things right again, what, what is happening? Well, you know, to me, maybe it's a placebo effect. It's a lot like medication. I mean, for some people, you give them an antidepressant, and you know, they're in a trial, and they're really getting the, the sugar pill. They believe that that antidepressant's going to help them, and it does. And, you know, and I'm not trying to, to, to denigrate religious faith. I mean, I, I know this does happen for people, particularly in substance abuse, where for a lot of folks, that's what keeps them uh, off the drugs or off the alcohol, is that faith and the 12-step programs. I don't disagree with that. And, and if that's what does it for you, that's wonderful. I encourage those people, though, that provide those services that way to make sure that they have connections with trained physicians um, and counselors that in case that person is more complicated or starts to deteriorate, that they get the medical care that they need as backup. But I have no problem with that. My real problem is giving them federal funds directly. That's my real problem. Um, I, you know, I encourage them to go forth and do good. Uh, but it's not with, not with taxpayers' money. Let's talk about your personal story for a bit. Uh, you came out of the closet, as you, as you say, uh, in terms of being a, a, uh, or having problems mentally, mm -hmm. uh, being bipolar. And you took a run for the, uh, the House. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah the House. Yeah, the 3rd District yes. uh, U.S. Congress. Yeah. Yes. And you said that the, the Democratic Party encouraged you to do this. Mm -hmm. To talk about that. That's an interesting thing for a party 
to do with a candidate? Well, uh, what what happens in West Michigan, considering that the the third district, um, we've only had one Democrat in that seat, and that was a post-Watergate uh, kind of thing. It was right after Watergate. Um, it's been a Republican House seat for as long as anybody can remember, that we're always looking for folks to volunteer to run. And uh, the way they convinced me to do it um, was to say, look at the public platform you'll have to talk about mental health issues. And so, you know, I went into this and everybody knew um, that I had this and the press was really nice about it. I mean, they'd even ask me if they could mention it, which I thought was very nice because I'd already stuck myself out there. So, you know, they didn't have to ask and they always did. And uh, I knew that Vern wouldn't use it in any way that was negative. And um, it did give me the opportunity to do just that. So it was a positive experience. Yeah, I really, you know, I've always been kind of a political junkie anyway. I'm one of those, you know, real news junkies. And uh, the only time I ever skipped school when I was in high school was to watch Watergate hearings. Yeah. So <laughs> it gives you an idea of what I'm like. And um, uh, this is before I was diagnosed with bipolar, by the way. And so I really did enjoy it. I, I, I really do enjoy politics. And, and the reaction you received from the electorate. Uh, it's amazing how many people came up to me and said, oh, I'm so glad you're talking about these issues. I'm so glad you're out in the open. But I did have one interesting experience that relates to what we're talking about here is I was at the Labor Day picnic and I was speaking a little bit and this gentleman came up to me um, and he had his wife and his two daughters were there and he says, oh, I was just diagnosed with bipolar and he's asking me some questions and things and I'm talking to him and he comes, his wife steps over and she says, well, I don't think it's a real illness. And I said, excuse me? She says, I think it's sin. That's what our, our minister says, it's sin. And I said, well, do you think epilepsy is a sin? And she says, well, no. Do you think diabetes is a sin? Well, yes, gluttony. And I, I looked at her and I, and I said, you know, I understand that I'm sure your husband has done things that were just hurtful to you when he's been ill. And it seems like he's doing it on purpose because it's in how he behaves. It's not like having a broken leg. I understand that. But you really need to learn more about this because even if you don't care about your husband's well health, because if he doesn't keep on treatment, the, the rate of death by suicide is 20%. 60% of people with bipolar disorder have a substance abuse problem if they're not in treatment because they're self-medicating. I said, you should care about your children because you've got two daughters and this is the most inheritable of all mental illnesses. And there's a chance that one of your daughters will develop it. And you need to be able to be there for them to get them the medical care they need. And so I gave her some information, you know, I wrote down some websites and stuff and handed it to her, but she was sure that it was sin. And so, you know, under uh, these faith-based initiatives and under this HUD program we were talking about, there's nothing in there that says any of these faith-based programs have to have qualified, certified therapists or doctors on board. They are free, basically, to claim they provide treatment and do whatever they please. And they won't be auditable in that sense. They're not held to any kind of accreditation, which I find frightening. That's, uh, that's an area we haven't even begun to, to uh, cover. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU Radio. I'm Fred Stella, and Kate Linz is my guest. Today we're talking about faith-based initiatives. And let's go right back to what you just said. You're saying that if, if you and I have uh, the Church of Fred together, mm -hmm. okay, and we're recognized by the state and we want to put together some sort of, uh, of uh, health 
program for people with uh, eye twitches. Yeah. And we can go ahead and do that. And if we pass the muster there, we can get the money. And at that point, we are no longer accountable for what we do. Well, you know, you don't. Let's narrow it a little bit and say that that Bush's program, as he originally proposed, it went through. Okay, so that we were eligible then to apply for federal funds, and we did. And say we decided we wanted to specialize in people with bipolar disorder because you know I'm working with you and that's my interest. And we wanted to talk to people about how, you know, um, worshiping a particular thing would help them overcome this illness, that they didn't really need medication and everything. And we didn't have to have a doctor on board. We didn't have to have a licensed psychologist. We don't have to be accredited by the State Department of Community Health or anything like that. And we wouldn't have to show that. We wouldn't have to provide that. We wouldn't have to have it. So we basically could use those funds and whatever we said we'd do on the grant application or whatever and keep books however they told us we had to, but a lot of it's self-certification, and to show where the money went. But we wouldn't have to show that we really cured anybody. And we wouldn't have to have licensed professionals on board. In fact, I, I testified at the annual hearing at our local um, uh, Department of Community Mental Health and I said, you know, I'm sure a lot of people on the board here think that this, it was not too long after the President's State of the Union address and, you know, about putting all this money into faith-based substance abuse treatment uh, organizations. And I said, a lot of it, you, I'm sure, think that's a good idea. But did it occur to you, that particularly now that they've become an authority and they're no longer directly under the county and they're looking to expand their services and they want to provide more substance abuse treatment, I said, you have to be licensed, inspected, accredited, you know, you have malpractice insurance, you have all these other things. These groups won't, and they'll be in direct competition f with you for a, for a limited pile of money. And so they won't have to have any of those things. And what was and the response will. from... from Well, they never talk back at these hearings. They just listen. But they all had very shocked expressions on their faces because they'd never viewed it that way. Now, you say if the president was able to pass this legislation through as originally written. Mm -hmm. Now how, has it been modified or? Uh, well, it's just, it's only a piece, the only piece I think that's going through is the tax credit deduction thing. Um, none of the rest of it survived, except for the, the HUD stuff we talked about, which was done by rule. Right. And stuff like that is always happening in this administration. Um, you know, most of what happens in this administration is really goes on in the federal register <laughs> and you have to be a real nerd to follow it. But um, if, for instance, what had been proposed had gone through, which was supported here in an editorial in the Grand Rapids Press and by my uh, past opponent last, in the last election, uh, Representative Ehlers, they're very supportive of this whole concept of Bush's. But I don't think they see it from the perspective of, one, an agency that provides services. How can you compete with someone who doesn't have to have licensed professionals, have med practice insurance, have any accountability? What if that person committed suicide under your program? What recourse would their family have? What if that person ended up commit, you know, having a botched suicide attempt and ended up in the hospital? Would they have any recourse against you? You'd have no malpractice insurance. You'd have no license, no certification. Where is your accountability to that individual? particularly if you're taking federal funds or state funds. You know, um, it's bad enough if you did that anyway, but that's your choice. But to do it with our taxpayer money is a violation of the Constitution, and it's a threat. It's, it's potentially damaging to people. And that's, you know, aside from the constitutional issues, which I love to debate, you know, far into the night over pitchers of beer, 
is the whole issue of are you really helping that person? And maybe you're not. Why is it that when you were in trouble, you ended up in a faith-based institution? Because that was basically, um, there's not many other alternatives here in this community. And I, actually my psychiatrist was in Ann Arbor, but, um, and I'd been in the hospital down there before, but that was a heck of a commute. My parents had just moved back to Michigan, and you know, it's a long haul back and forth to Ann Arbor. And so this was like, well, you know, it was just for a drug thing, you know, to get off one medication and onto another because you, you had to be clean for a certain amount of time. And I was really suicidal and, you know, I couldn't do that outside the hospital. I thought this would just be, you know, kind of a, um, I don't know, sort of a, well, it would, wouldn't matter that much. Well, it turned out to matter a lot. And, uh, you know, so it, was, it, it just amazed me. And when I went back and looked at my file, it amazed me all the more. But I've talked to so many other people who don't fit the mold, who've come out with the same experience. And so it's not just me. Um, and it's, it's just really interesting. And I, I know people who used to work there who are not of the mold and who find it equally oppressive in terms of how they're supposed to act. And, I'm, you know, and with private funds, that is their business. You know, I don't disagree with it. And it was my fault for stepping into the middle of it, which I never will again. You know, if I have to be hospitalized, hopefully I won't. But if that's receiving federal funds, and it's my duty as a taxpayer to fight it, if I believe in the Establishment Clause the way I do. So, so that's it, where I draw the line. Your experience is not like some agnostic breaking his leg and getting it treated at St. Mary's Hospital. Correct. Correct. How do, that's an interesting subject, how do hospitals uh, uh, like St. Mary's fit into this mix? I mean, now they have a very strong Christian they identity. They do, but they're not as ev evangelical. Right. It's like Lutheran Social Services. My family's Lutheran in background, you know, and they're not the same evangelical approach either. But then, you know, you look at Catholic hospitals, do they have to provide birth control to the doctors? Do they, to their pharmacies, you know, do they, can they provide abortion services? And, and, you know, and that's where that gets a little dicey, okay? Right. Uh, but overall, I think that, uh, you know, Catholic hospitals have a much longer experience in providing services to the community, to everyone, and not looking at, at them so much as you fit with us or you don't. Um, and I think Lutheran Social Services, they have a long track record of doing the same things. But some of these, you know, newer groups, they're not quite, they, 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 don't, they don't value the Establishment Clause. They don't value the separation of church and state. They, they view it as an annoyance, an inconvenience, or something that's misinterpreted in the Constitution. And you know, they would love to just erode it. Um, and there's always you know, nagging people like me on the other side going, oh, no, this isn't a good thing. It, it, it reminds me of uh, when I talk to people about uh, foreign missions, uh, the, the kind of mission work that some denominations of Christianity do are drastically different than others. There are some, uh, for instance, Catholic missions I know, we're very, very focused on just doing the work that needs to be done. Exactly. Building the water supplies, the sewers, providing the medication, the doctors, the hospitals, the teachers, the books, the buildings. Exactly, right. And there are others of other denominations who are just out to, uh, you know, uh, get as many statistics as, uh, as they possibly can into their books so they can uh, encourage more giving. Exactly. 
Exactly. And, 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 you know, the, that debate's been very heated since the war or the, the war has been declared over with in Iraq of, you know, some of these groups wanting to go over there, which would be just grossly <gasps> offensive. Uh, but they don't see it that way. And it's the same kind of thing. It's like there's this blindness. If you're positive, you're right. You know, if you're positive that you have the ticket to your heaven and you want everyone else to have that ticket too. So from your perspective, as I understand it, having grown up here, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to be a good person, but you can't look that other person in the eye and see them as a whole person that doesn't need changing. Right. Those people who are listening to this right now and are concerned after what they've heard, how might they be able to get involved What's well, the best way to make sure that we keep things uh, uh, separated, as you uh, I think there's a number of groups out there that are both national and have local. Well, I know that there's a local affiliate here of the ACLU, um, as well as, uh, I don't know, I don't think there's a local affiliate for Americans United for Separation of Church and State, but you can find them on the web. Um, and I should have brought the phone number for our local ACLU, and I apologize that I don't, but if you just go on to ACLU.org, you can find them on the web and click into Michigan, uh, West Michigan, and find one for Grand Rapids. But it's those kind of groups that are monitoring this on a federal level. They have great web pages. Uh, a lot of the information I brought uh, over the last couple of sessions we've had are from those web pages, um, and they're excellent sources of information. Also, it just struck me, Interfaith Alliance must be working yes, on this. Yes, they are another well. one. Yes, they are. In fact, um, I know that they participate with uh, Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Wonderful. Well, Kate Linz, uh, we are down to the wire on this particular show, but I want to thank you so very much for taking time out of your day to be with us. Well, I'm glad you got a chance to read your article. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> thrilled about that. I really am. My name is Fred Stella, and this has been Common Threads. Please join us again right here, same time, on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. Common Threads